The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. It is immensely popular, at least as an idea. We talk about it, post about it, dream about it, plan for it. But peace sure knows how to elude us, doesn't it? I mean, it does not mark our world, and I don't just mean unsettling headlines from distant lands. Peace eludes those in the richest professions, the most secure neighborhoods, the most advanced nations. Peace eludes us even when we've arrived. In his 2009 Hall of Fame speech, Michael Jordan called the game of basketball, quote, my refuge the place where I've gone when I've needed to find comfort and peace. A few years later, when he turned 50, the the restlessness remained. In a candid interview with ESPN, Jordan wondered aloud, quote, how can I enjoy the next 20 years without so much of this consuming me? How can I find peace away from the game of basketball? The answer, it turns out, for both MJ, and for us, is found in this ancient book. Please turn with me to the the New Testament letter of Philippians. We're in the, the final chapter as the Apostle Paul is writing from prison in Rome to a young congregation in northern Greece. And in this passage, we're, we're going to see many of the themes Paul's already touched on throughout the letter converging with laser-like focus on the Philippians' hearts. Here's what I think is the, the main idea of Philippians 4, 2 through 9. The main idea. There's a lot more going on than this, but, but here's what I think is the, the primary thrust. Peace is elusive in a fallen world, but it's available in our faithful God. Peace is elusive in our fallen world, but it's available in our faithful God. We'll think about this in three points as we step through this passage. First, the test of peace. That's verses 2 and 3. Second, the gift of peace, verses 4 to 7. And finally, the God of peace. It's verses 8 and 9. So the test of peace, the gift of peace, and the God of peace. First, the test of peace, verse 2. I plead, this is, this is Paul writing, I, I plead with Judea and I plead with Seneca to be of the same mind in the Lord. <laughs> 
Paul doesn't usually do this. He, he doesn't usually name names, but here he calls out two sisters in the church that he's heard aren't getting along. Now, he's not just putting them on blast. Uh, he doesn't say, how dare you? Notice he says, I plead. I plead. He's, he's brokenhearted. And he's begging them to be like-minded. This is not a new theme. Look back, for example, uh, to the beginning of, of chapter 2. Look there at chapter 2, verse 2. Make my joy complete. How? By being like-minded, having the same love, being of one in spirit and of one mind. In verse 5, in your relationships with each other, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then at the end of chapter 3, remember that? Paul gives us the foil, all right? Enemies of the cross. Chapter 3, verse 19, enemies of the cross have their minds set on earthly things. But these two sisters in the church are not enemies of the cross. They're not opponents of the gospel. They're citizens of heaven. And yet they're living as enemies on earth. And it's not okay. We don't know what the dispute was, but it, it wasn't over the gospel. I mean, Paul assumes the, these are two Christians, church members in good standing, but there's some kind of intractable disagreement between them. And, and even in the way he phrases the request, notice that he thinks reconciliation is a two-way street. Do you see that there? He, he doesn't just accuse one sister, nor does he just kind of lump them together. No, he says, I plead with Eudia, in other words, do your part, and I plead with Syneche, do your part. Whatever the issue, it, it didn't warrant breaking fellowship. And yet, somehow, this is the way these things tend to happen in a fallen world, it didn't warrant breaking fellowship, and yet it had escalated to the point of being known in the church, so much so that news of it had traveled 800 miles to Paul in Rome. So he even goes so far, it's so serious at this point, he goes so far as to request help from a mediator. Verse 3, yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women. Help these women since they've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. We don't know the identity of this true companion, but, but it was some member of the church Paul trusted enough to help these women work through their differences. I mean, just, just by the way, notice that, that he assumes other church members will have the ability and opportunity to speak into these sisters' lives, and he expects that they will listen. All up in your business, Christianity, is normal Christianity. And look at the high regard Paul has for Judea and Syntyche. He's not looking down at them. He, he's saying, they, they've been beside me, laboring with me as co-workers in the cause of Christ. I, I love this. I love how in a deeply patriarchal culture, culture, Paul is unafraid to affirm these women, to speak highly of their gospel work. And I want RCBC to be a church also where the sisters among us thrive, where they feel seen and valued and encouraged and championed in their ministry among us. 
because it's vital. Notice also at the end of verse 3, Paul goes out of his way to mention a term. He says that all these names are in the book of life. This is actually the only time this term appears in Paul's writings. Though it does, of course, show up elsewhere, most notably at the very end of the New Testament, where the Apostle John uses it six times in the book of Revelation. Most notably, Revelation 21, describing the heavenly city, 21:27, quote, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The book of life is the membership directory of the age to come. It contains the names of those whose minds are fixed on heaven. So hear the echoes from chapter three, whose minds are fixed on heaven. Why? Because that's where their citizenship ultimately resides. But why here? Why does Paul, for the, in the only time in all his letters, why here? Why does he mention the book of life in the context of two sisters squabbling? Well, it's because he's saying, hey, Judea, Syneche, you know, if he were preaching to the Philippian church, he wouldn't be saying Judea and Syneche because they're not sitting next to each other, right? It's like Judea and Syneche, okay? Look up. Look beyond your point of difference to the ultimate commonality you share. You're in the same family. You're going to spend forever together in heaven. So start working things out on earth. According to the Bible, it is not a legitimate option. It is not a legitimate option for two Christians in the same church to stay unreconciled. It is not a biblically legitimate option for two Christians in the same church to stay unreconciled. That's not to say you have to be close to everyone, but it does mean you have to have a a posture toward everyone of openness and warmth. You, You can't say, well, I'm just going to pretend that person doesn't exist. I love my church, but I'm just going to operate as if that person's not a part of it. No, you don't get to do that. They do exist, and they're family. As Michael Horton has said, a church is not a group of friends you've picked. I'll finish the quote in a second. I'll just say that's one reason why people have such problems in churches. It's not the only reason. I'm not minimizing other things, but some of it comes down to wrong expectations on the front end. A church is not a group of friends you've picked. It's a group of brothers and sisters God has picked for you. Beloved, in in a church our size, it's just going to be normal like normal, for members to see certain things differently. And guess what? That's okay. (laughs) I mean, we know what we agree on. That's why we have a statement of faith. That's what we agree on. But there's so much on, on, on which many of us wouldn't see eye to eye. I mean, not primary or secondary doctrines. In other words, things you need to agree on in order to be members of the same church in order to do church together, but tertiary 
doctrines or how to apply some of those agreed upon doctrines or how to raise kids or speaking of kids, not just how to raise them, but how to discipline them or how to school them. And, and of course, there's any number of political or cultural sensibilities that, that can clash. But do you realize that diversity of thought on tertiary issues can actually be a good thing? We're, we're not trying to be a cult here. We, we, want, we, we don't want to be uniform. We want to be unified even though we may differ on some important but non-essential things. Disagreeing with another church member is normal. Feeling misunderstood is normal. Being frustrated is normal. Welcome to a fallen world. And when you feel those things, not if, but when someone says something that doesn't land well, that doesn't sit right with you, when you feel misunderstood, when you feel hurt, when you feel neglected, all of that needs to have either one or two things done with it. Either it needs to be overlooked in love. The Bible has a whole lot to say about just simply overlooking offenses. Or if you're not going to overlook it, then it needs to be resolved. If it's a conflict, it needs to be resolved. But what there can't be, and this is not just just a preacher in self-protecting mode. No, this is the Bible. What there can't be is these lingering, festering grievances that get nursed rather than addressed. To put it frankly, you are not going to love everything about RCBC. And you can say amen, some of you, I won't judge you. But we're only 13 months old. It's still a little bit of a honeymoon phase. So, so I just want to be very clear publicly on record and say, you're not going to love everything about this church. And that's okay. This will never be anyone's perfect church. We'll only be members of one perfect church, and that's in the age to come. I don't love every song we sing, every interaction I have, every sermon I preach. I mean, do you realize how much of our church covenant assumes this kind of friction, assumes this kind of tension and potential conflict? We'll, we'll recite the church covenant tonight before we take the Lord's Supper. Just think about how much of it focuses on this very dynamic. Promise one, we'll walk together in love as brothers and sisters, a family of Sinners, sinners saved by grace. Promise two, will labor for the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, bearing patiently with each other and freely forgiving as we have been forgiven in Christ. Promise three, will pursue transparency with each other, resisting the temptation to hide our struggles and sins. Why? So that we might experience the grace of God in the care of his saints. Promise five, we'll commit to the ministry of prayer and to pursue each other's good as we encourage frequently, admonish gently, and receive correction humbly. Promise eight, we'll rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. 
look, when sinners bump up against each other, there's going to be some friction. Sparks are going to sometimes fly. Let's not be so fragile that we can't, with humble maturity, work through misunderstandings and personal hurts. Let's be resilient. Let's keep being resilient and resolved in being easy to please and hard to offend. In his recent book on forgiveness, excellent book on forgiveness, Tim Keller draws this comparison. If a cartoonist wants to make someone look ludicrous, she can create a caricature. She can take something about a person's face that's unusual or a bit unattractive and exaggerate it, making it prominent so the person looks foolish. That's exactly what your heart does when someone wrongs you. You think of them one-dimensionally in terms of that one thing they've done to you. If somebody has lied to you, you tell yourself she lied because she's just a liar. But if you are caught in a lie and someone asks why you lied, you say, well, yes, but, but it's complicated. I, I didn't mean, sure, you lied, but, but you're basically a good person. So while you continue to think of yourself as a three-dimensional, complex human being, you start to think of the person who lied to you as a one-dimensional villain. This is one reason why you should pray through your membership directory because it's really hard to caricature and despise someone you're regularly praying for. River City don't you want to be this kind of church? The church, a kind of church that stands out in the world, or as Paul said in, in chapter two, who shines like stars in the universe. With the Spirit's help, we can do this. We can, with God's help, do this if we resolve to keep things in proportion and not get bent out of shape, easily bent out of shape when we differ with someone that we're gonna spend forever with. The test of peace. Number two, the gift of peace. The gift of peace. Verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. I think, I didn't read this in a commentary, so I, you know, I could be wrong. Not that commentaries can't be wrong as well. But I just, as I was reading this thought, I think it's the only place in Paul's letters where he repeats a command like this. You can tell me at the door afterward if, if you know of another one. I think it's the only time he does this. He wants the Philippians to see the connection. One of the means by which you will overcome differences and dwell together in unity is by being stubborn. Here's the good kind of stubbornness. Stubborn about pursuing joy. And not just joy in general, but joy that has an address. Rejoice, Paul says. Where? In the Lord. It's the only place where the real thing is found. Joy is so often misunderstood, not just by the world, by Christians. Joy is not just some kind of sweet accessory to your Christian life. Joy is, is not just something that shiny saints experience, those who have learned to turn their frowns upside down. Joy is not just a good mood. No, joy is tenacious. 
Joy claws, it grasps, it grips the promises of God and won't let go. And it's not like joy is just a big theme in Philippians, but not elsewhere. It's the very heartbeat of God. Do, do, Do you realize how central joy is to the whole biblical story? I mean, what is the gospel? Luke 2, good news of great joy. Believer, what is death? Matthew 25, entering into the joy of your master. What's the goal of prayer? John 16, ask and you shall receive and your joy will be complete. What's the goal of fellowship? Second John, I hope to visit and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. And what's the goal of engaging your Bible? Jeremiah 15, 16, obscure verse, but you should memorize it because it's amazing. Jeremiah 15, 16, Lord, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. Despite what our culture says to us, real joy is not found in listening to ourselves. Real joy is not found in listening to yourself. Real joy is found in listening intently to God. It's found when your delight is in the law of the Lord and when your happiness Hear me now, when your happiness is tethered, not to circumstances, but to promises. And that means when your happiness is tethered to promises, that means that there is a foundation of granite undergirding your life. You're not easily blown to and fro by the the winds of misunderstanding or disagreement. Because your identity and your gladness is not finally rooted in what other people think of you. It's grounded in God who does not change. And this kind of indomitable joy gives birth to something else. Verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Interesting connection, isn't it? Between joy and in gentleness. Gentleness is the immediate outward expression of joy. In other words, gentleness is how others should experience your joy in the Lord. And to the degree you're aware of the Lord's nearness in in both space and time, he's omnipresent and he's coming back soon, this sense on your heart, this felt sense of, of his holy divine proximity frees you to relax because it reminds you, guess what? You're not running the universe. You're not in charge. You, people won't finally answer to you and so it liberates you to be gentle, to be tender, patient, understanding. And this gentleness, Paul says, should not be just a private, hidden thing. It should be evident to everyone. It should go public. One commentator puts it like this. Be known. Be known for gentleness. That's almost a delicious oxymoron. (laughs) So much in our culture wants us to be known for aggressiveness or for some intrinsic strength or superiority. The gentle person doesn't usually think in terms of being known, but Paul wants us to so focus on gentleness that eventually we become known for it. Friends, gentleness in our culture 
looks like weakness, but it's not. It is channeled strength. That's what gentleness is. It's channeled strength. And in an age of outrage, I I think it may be the most underrated and underestimated fruit of the Spirit. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, before we look at the the sinful anxiety in view here, we should acknowledge that this isn't referring to every single kind of anxiety in existence. There are certain kinds of anxiety which have other factors feeding into it. In fact, there's a legitimate kind that all Christians should feel. We actually saw a hint of this at the end of chapter 2. Look back at chapter 2, verse 28. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send Epaphroditus. Why? <laughs> so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Paul's not confessing sin. He's unveiling his heart. Same thing in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, where he just, in passing, says he speaks of the, quote, daily pressure he feels of his anxiety for all the churches. So, so the difference between good anxiety and bad is that the good kind is finally concerned with the name and renown of Jesus and the welfare of his church in the world, whereas the bad kind tends to be concerned with basically everything else. So what's the prescription according to verse 6? The prescription is to turn your fears into prayers. So it's not just that you should pray as an antidote to anxiety, or as I, I should say, as a preventative measure, though it can function like that. But when you become anxious, when you become afraid, take that and turn that into prayer. And look, it's, it's not just prayers of petition when you're making, where you're making requests to God. It's also prayers of thanksgiving, Paul says, where you're praising him just for who he is and what he's already done. Because when you remember his faithfulness in the past and his promises for the future, it settles your heart in the present. Now look, this is an incredibly familiar verse. Right, this is Christianity 101. We know this. We got this. But do we? I mean, when fear of the unknown pierces through the calm of your life and sparks anxiety in your heart, do you immediately turn to God or to Google? When you're anxious and and concerned about something, is your first impulse to message a friend or to cry out to God? So often I treat prayer like this, like like just frankly a last resort when I've exhausted all other options. 
I mean, if I've sought counsel and it's conflicting or the people didn't know what to think or I've done some research and I'm still unclear, well, then I'll cry out to God. I'm not an atheist. Except the whole journey, the whole process in getting to this point was utterly devoid of God. Well, when that happens, when we... Well, what happens when in these moments we try to play God? What happens, though, when instead of doing that, when instead of trying to play God, our impulse is to go directly to him? Well, here's what happens. Verse 7, and the peace of God. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do you see the logical progression in Paul's thought? The call to rejoice precedes the call to not be anxious. And the the implication is that joy in Christ is one of the best preparations for trials in this life. And when those trials come, not if, but when, when those trials come, they will surface anxiety. Welcome again to a fallen world. But in that moment, when the anxiety starts to bubble up, you have a choice. You can keep talking to yourself, listening to yourself, praying to yourself, which is essentially what worry is. Or you can speak to God. You can try to think your way out of it, Google your way out of it, exercise your way out of it, eat your way out of it, research your way out of it, shop your way out of it, or you can say, you know what? I'm going to pray my way through it. It's been said that worry is the worship song we sing to our idols. And this peace that Paul's talking about is not a human product. It's not a human product. It comes from God and it transcends all understanding which means it's supernatural when you lose your job when the person betrays you when the cancer diagnosis comes when your child walks away from the lord it makes no sense in that moment and in the weeks and months to come it makes no sense that there would be any semblance of inner calm but the peace of god transcends understanding And Paul insists it it will also guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Do you hear that imagery? It'll guard your heart and mind. Your soul is like a citadel patrolled by a military peacekeeping force that is omnipotent. See, when I'm worried, the problem so often, it's not that I have forgotten totally about God. But it's that I'm just glancing at him while gazing at my circumstances. So I'm gazing at my circumstances while just glancing at God. The antidote to worry, the way you start to build trust, is to reverse that entrenched habit. You glance at your circumstances, but you gaze at God. And all of this peace, again, is unlocked through prayer. Prayer is the key that unlocks the promises of God. 
We, we go to the bank of God's promises, and through faith, we make withdrawals. That's what prayer is. The gift of peace. Finally, number three, the God of peace. Verse eight. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. This is a giant exclamation mark on what Paul has been saying throughout the letter. And in the immediate context here, what he's saying is, hey, instead of focusing on all that stuff that's making you so anxious, here's a list of things to focus on. It's an incredible list of virtues, but we just don't live in a society. I mean, this is not news to any of us. We, we don't live in a society in which we are in any way being encouraged to think about such things. I mean, just turn on the TV, flip on the radio, scroll through social media, go to the homepage of Netflix, walk past the magazines in the grocery store. We are constantly being bombarded with sights and sounds, images and words that are spoon-feeding, spoon-feeding, spoon-feeding lies to our souls. There's an old saying you may have heard, let me write the songs of a nation and I care not who makes its laws. Let me write the songs of a nation, and I care not who makes its laws. In other words, the most effective way to change people's minds is to get to their hearts, to capture their hearts. You teenagers in particular, I hope you realize that that you are living in a moral and spiritual war zone. Almost every moment of your waking, li- uh, waking life, a battle is being waged for your attention, for your imagination, and for your heart. I want to challenge you. Uh, take some time later today, maybe this afternoon, maybe before you go to bed, and pull out Philippians 4.8, as it were, all right? This would be a great verse to memorize. You can write it on an index card if, if you know what those things are. I know it's a digital age. But pull out Philippians 4.8 and treat it like a mirror. A mirror. Assess your life honestly in light of these words. Do they describe you? And to answer that question accurately, ask yourself this. Would your friends at school or on your team, would they see you in the reflection of Philippians 4.8? Would they say, yeah, that that guy, that girl, she, she is all about what is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. Look, what you watch, what you listen to, what you take in, what you immerse yourself in is affecting you. It is. And it's molding and shaping what you love and how you act. And adults, we ain't off the hook. To take just one example, if you tend to follow the twists and turns of every political controversy, if you unwind at night by reading hot takes or watching cable news, then I guarantee you're not falling asleep and waking up with a heart at rest. 
Just because you don't listen to filthy music or watch trashy shows doesn't mean you're guarding the citadel of your heart. Beware of what you're letting in, too. Ask yourself, is focusing on this stirring up fear and anger? Or is it promoting truth? Is it leading to, to truth? Is it reminding me of truth that promotes peace? Because why, did, why does the truth promote peace? Because it reminds me of who is finally in charge. Finally, verse 9. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. So, so again, we see this theme of imitation. Imitation, not because Paul's perfect, but because he's faithful. And the example he's setting is comprehensive. You, you see that? Verse 8, what you think, but also verse 9, what you hear and what you see. One simple application of verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, ponder these things. Verse 9, practice these things. Is to make it a habit to ask someone after the service or over lunch, hey, how did God's word minister to you this morning. It's, it's a tragedy that this kind of post-service dialogue can be so rare in churches. Let's not let it be rare here. It shouldn't feel awkward to, to bring up. It doesn't need to feel super spiritual. It should just be normal. The Sunday morning service is not a Spotify playlist and a TED Talk that's meant to entertain you or, inter, or intrigue you. It's meant to change you. And part of the way that happens, part of the way that the Holy Spirit changes us and transforms us through his word, not just in the sermon, but through his word that's coming through the prayers and the scripture readings and the songs, is when we debrief it, not just in home group, but when it's fresh, still ringing in our ears. And kids, teens, I've said this before, as a reminder, don't just wait for mom and dad to initiate with you, to ask you, pose the question to them. Hey, how did God's word help you today? How did God's word encourage you today? It's only awkward if you make it awkward. It doesn't have to be. It can be normal. Talk to your parents. Parents, talk to your kids. Members, talk to one another about how the word of God can become more central and more dominant in our affections, in our thoughts, and our lives. And end of verse 9, and the God of peace will be with you. I love that. It's an echo of verse 7, but it, there's also a distinction. Verse 7, the peace of God. Verse 9, the God of peace. The peace of God is a logic-surpassing gift from the God of peace. Friend, if you're here and you are not following Jesus Christ, if, if you've not put your trust in him, then I wonder, have you ever considered this question, am I at peace with God? The, the, the Bible insists that actually you're, you're not. None of us is born at peace with God. We're, we're born at war with God because he is good and we're not. We, we've all, as I prayed in the pastoral prayer earlier, we've all looked at his good design for the world and for our lives and said, no thank you. 
and gone the other way. And there are different ways to be lost. You can be lost through your irreligion, right? By breaking all the moral rules. You can also be lost through religion by following all the moral rules. But the Lord says to us that all of us are lost in our sin. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are at peace with him, which is why Jesus came. He came to live a life in which he was entirely at peace with his Father in our place and to die on the cross to absorb the justice and the wrath of God that was due to us for our sin and to rise again on the third day so that anyone who turns from their sin and puts their trust in him will one day have the confidence that they'll rise right along with him. An old Puritan put it like this, you are either at peace with sin and at war with God or at peace with God and at war with sin. God's wrath fell on Jesus so that his peace could fall on sinners like you and me. If you haven't put your trust in Christ, if you haven't fled to him as your refuge, then you can do so this morning. We're not here to entertain you. We're not just here to edify you or stir you. Ultimately, we are here as mediators, as ambassadors of news from the throne room of heaven that you can be reconciled to a holy God, and you can do so this morning through simple repentance and faith. If you have any questions about what that means for your life, talk to me at the door after the service or talk to someone who belongs to this church. We would love to share with you the hope and the joy and the peace that we have found in knowing Christ. Well, in conclusion... Philippi, uh, as we've thought about in previous weeks, Philippi was a Roman colony. And what that meant was that every day, the Philippian believers would have been surrounded by a particular slogan, like literally, there, there would have been a slogan plastered throughout their city. Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. The message was clear. If you want peace, citizens, submit to Rome. But the Philippian Christians knew something. They had come to know something that most of their neighbors did not. They knew that, that just a few decades earlier, an invasion had taken place. Heaven had broken into earth. The future had broken back into the present and another empire had been born. The incarnation of Jesus Christ. We don't just think about this at Christmas, okay? The incarnation of Jesus Christ was both a dawning of peace and a declaration of war. And it wasn't just a sweet baby in a manger because that baby grew up to become a man who became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And on that cross, suspended on Roman wood, he made peace between God and man. No other religion teaches anything like this. No other religion, philosophy, worldview, comes close to a message like this. Each one insists in some form or another that you, you, you want to be burdened this morning? Listen to this. You have to attain, achieve, climb your way up to some kind of transcendent peace, which is why it never happens why it never 
lasts. But the gospel breaks in with glad news and says, no, no, you can receive God's peace through trusting Jesus. You can enjoy God's peace through following Jesus, and you can spread God's peace through proclaiming Jesus. Oh, friend, if you want to know the peace of God, then you've got to enter a relationship with the God of peace. And if you want to know him, if you want to, if you want to know this God, you must embrace his only begotten son. Because in the final analysis, peace is only found in the prince of it. It's only found in Christ. Let's pray. Father, our world is anything but peaceful. This is a scary place to live. Not just because of the headlines, but because of what we see in our own immediate circumstances, Lord, the, the reports from the doctor, the, the, the bank account, the, the, the job interviews, the relational difficulties. We could just pile up example after example of things that are pressing on our hearts and stressing us out and sparking anxiety. Lord, we pray that we would be a church that is slow to grumble, that is difficult to offend and that is quick to turn our fears into prayers and find peace from you. And it's in the beautiful name of your son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.